the Appendix N Podcast. Episode 43, What Mad Universe by Frederick Brown. Welcome to the Appendix N Podcast, a Tome Show production. My name is Jeffrey Wynn. This is the show where we discuss the tales of the authors that appeared in Appendix N of the 1979 Dungeon Master's Guide, meant to serve as inspirational reading for those who would master the dungeons of fantasy. When you're reading a good book, inspiration can hit you like an electric shock, or like a rocket out of the blue. Suddenly you are creating whole worlds, and they may bear some resemblance to our own, or they may contain shocking twists. Just remember to leave room for the purple space monsters. For those of you listening at home, you are encouraged to read along with us and send us your comments. Listen to the end of the episode for some of the stories we'll be discussing on future episodes. And email your thoughts to thetomeshow at gmail.com. Before we get to the main topic, let us have a word from our sponsor. Like dice? Need more dice? Check out EasyRollerDice.com for amazing dice, including their gunmetal and rose gold collections. When you visit, make sure to use coupon code TOME, that's T-O-M-E, at checkout and save 15% immediately. Again, go to EasyRollerDice.com and use code TOME at checkout and save 15% and snag yourself some great dice and gaming accessories. And now on with the show. With me, as always, is my co-host Jeff Wickstrom. Welcome back, Jeff. As always, I am thrilled to be here. And uh, returning guest uh, Chris Constantine. Always a pleasure, gentlemen. Chris, it's been a while since you've been on the show. What What would you like our listeners to know about you? Well, lately I've been co-hosting RPG Circus with Jeff Brisket, and we just did an article on atomic horror and prisons and gaming. All right. Joining us for the first time is uh, Siobhan Kriswicki. Welcome, welcome, Siobhan. Thank you. Hi. Thank you. And uh, what would you what would you like our listeners to know about you and your and your nerd cred and your gaming background? <laughs> this um, is your your first time on Appendix N, so if you could it is. could explain a little bit about um, your personal relationship with uh, Gary Gygax. Did you ever see him eating a sandwich? Have you ever, uh, et cetera, et cetera? Just why, just, uh, why, why on earth should we trust your opinion about about books? Um, I've been involved in science fiction for probably 40, 42 years. My mother started taking me to science fiction conventions when I was young. Um, she also is the one that introduced me to Dungeons and Dragons. I still have the full hardcover set upstairs from the uh, the original hardcovers, um, including, of course, the deities and demigods with the Lovecraft stuff in it. Oh my. Um, What's that? Oh my! <laughs> um, the uh, I help run a science fiction convention called ReaderCon uh, that happens in the Boston area. Uh, next year I'll be con chair, um, and I've published uh, one short story so far um, in an uh, anthology. Uh, Hidden Youth is the name of the anthology. So my my understanding, based on our release schedule, is that ReaderCon will have will have come and gone by the time this is out. You know what the nice thing is, Jeff? It happens every year. I was going to say, ReaderCon 2018 <laughs> will presumably happen sometime in July. Yep, and that'll be the first year that the, that'll be the first year that I'm a con chair. Well done. Thank you. Awesome. Congratulations. Well, you you I think you'll be a fine addition to the to to the podcast. 
so tonight uh, we are talking about author Frederick Brown. This is the first time we're talking about Frederick Brown, and and possibly the last time. I think I think What Mad Universe is the only title that Gygax had listed for him. Frederick Brown was born October 29th, 1906 in Cincinnati, and he died March 11th, 1972. He was known for his use of humor and for his mastery of the short, short form, stories of one to three pages, often with ingenious plotting devices and surprise endings, such as the masterpiece Sentry, or his other masterpiece, Knock, which we'll be talking about in a moment. One of his stories, Arena, is officially credited for an adaptation as an episode of Star Trek. Uh, he wrote the de- detective novel Screaming Mimi, which was made into a movie in 1958. Philip K. Dick described his 1945 short story, The Waveries, as what may be the most significant, startlingly so, story SF has yet produced. And Neil Gaiman and Stephen King are both fans of his. So he's not an insignificant figure uh, in, in the history of Pulp Fiction. No, he was, he was very prolific um, for, a, for a certain period of time, kind of mid-century. Mm-hmm. He was much more prolific as a mystery writer uh, than he, because it paid better than he was as a science fiction author. Uh, I have five or six of his uh, mystery novels, although I've only read, uh, read one. Um, and fortunately, Nesfa uh, came out with two hardcovers that are the complete works of Frederick Brown, all of his novels in one book and all of his short stories in another. Mm-hmm. Well, his, his, uh, his work in, in Crime Noir definitely shows through in the, in the scene where they, where they visit the uh, uh, crime gang uh-huh. hideout. The crime gang. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on, on, on words, but yeah. Well, there's some uh, real violence thugs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. So, uh, What Mad Universe was published in 1949 by E.P. Dutton in hardcover, and we're going to talk about it right now. It's, uh, it's, it's almost The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy before there was The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. We have a satire of the pulp sci-fi genre. That's actually funny. It's, it's just uh, the opposite of the Cornelian Cube in that respect. It's kind of the bizarro world version. In that it's a, a a very good and fun novel, or or so I thought. Yeah, well, I, I think I think we were we were going to talk about the short story knock before we before before we we get to what mad universe. Uh, Jeff, can can you tell us about uh, knock and our, our our trouble actually reading reading knock? Okay, well, I'll I'll take responsibility for the difficulty in reading knock. Knock is uh, is a play on a two sentence short story the last man on earth sat alone in a room there was a knock at the door and it turns out that if you google that you find so you you don't necessarily find knock by frederick brown you find knock by a bunch of other anonymous people who have uh tried to put their own own spin on it so i was passing around a bum link um which I, I believed to be knock by Frederick Brown until uh, Siobhan was able to correct me. Yeah, and then it was, I had it, to was go... a, it was a link to uh, Creepypasta, the preeminent, yeah, the yeah. preeminent internet horror fiction website. Where, where else but Creepypasta would you go for your short, short fiction? I, I, I don't go to Creepypasta, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. Yeah, I, I feel bad about it because I was passing around a bum link. I, it did not occur to me that there might be. Oh, this is version. this is the last time I leave you in charge of the of the, of the podcast, Jeff. Uh, clearly, clearly this was I, my this was my big moment, my big chance. Well, I mean, the 
horror story that it's doing a take on, the, the two-line story, is a really famous story. And it's only two lines long, so it's not really surprising to me that lots of people would try their hands at it, and all of them would fall short of Frederick Brown. I like the spin. Well done. <laughs> anyway, uh, I was able to find the actual text of Knock mm-hmm. um, by Frederick Brown, and then I, I discovered that I had actually read it before, uh, more than once, many, many years ago. Uh, and I and I listened to the I had listened to the X minus one uh, sci-fi radio adaptation of it as well, and it was one of my favorite X minus one uh, episodes, as I recall. Certainly, uh, one of my favorite stories that was adapted into an X minus one episode. Uh, so I feel a little foolish for having forgotten both the title of the story and the bit about the last man on earth sitting alone in a room and there was a knock at the door and the name of the author. Uh, you know, so, so none of that rang a bell until I was actually reading it. What is the story actually about? So in a nutshell, aliens have come and they have killed everybody. Oh. Everybody is dead. The whole planet, everybody is dead. There's uh, one exception. His name escapes me at the moment. I want to say George. No. Okay. Savant, what was his name? Let me, let me look it up. I have it on, on my Kindle. Walter Phelan. Walter. Believe. Yeah, he yes, loves okay. the name Walter. So. All right, so Walter is the last man alive, and Walter is a character that I I have I, I immediately uh, acquired a lot of affection for because he is a widower who is pretty clearly suffering from chronic depression, um, and his response to being the last man alive is, "Eh, what are you going to do?" Now, to be fair, he did die like a year and a half ago when he's the last person on the planet. There's only so much catharsis he can get. Yeah, he's I, he's his. Uh, he has recognizably what I what I recognized as uh, chronic depression, though, and I, I found that uh, really interesting to see in a sci-fi story from 1949. Are you saying that he's uh, suffering from chronic depression solely because he was an associate professor of anthropology at a tiny, tiny university? I think that may have been part of his problem, <laughs> but being the last man alive uh, may also have been part of it. Good. Yeah. Just like thinking out loud, it's a possibility. <laughs> so he's the he's the last man alive, and he's being kept in this sort of alien zoo because the aliens have killed pretty much everybody, but they have left like one of of uh, most species, uh, one or two of most species alive to so, to keep in sorry, a zoo. One other yeah. thing, um, sure. they only kept two hundred and sixteen other species alive. Two hundred and sixteen other species alive. I I don't know how they would have arrived at that. Yeah, you know, what would have been, what would or would not have made the cut. <laughs> I'm yeah. betting that. Um, Brown himself took it from uh, stuff about the Ark, Noah's that Ark. Could, that could um, but the aliens apparently did a lot of things at random. <laughs> well, there was a reference, I think, to their weapon affecting their vibration weapon. Yeah, yes. their vibration weapon affected animals, but not plants. Uh-huh. So there was a this this verdant uh, life on Earth had been turned into a. It had become a, a veritable Garden of Eden. He doesn't mention bugs, though. No, which I'm actually really kind of curious about how that would have worked ecologically, yeah. but that's not something that the that's not something that the story addresses. For our purposes, we just need to know that everybody's dead, um, <laughs> but there's a zoo full of survivors, and they the aliens come to Walter and they have a problem, which is that things are dying. They hmm. are aliens; they have no experience with death, natural death. Yeah, it's uh, you know it, nobody is murdering these things, and yet they mm-hmm. are still dying. And Walter, at first, does not really want to answer their questions or cooperate with them, but he does so kind of reluctantly uh, because they threaten to you know just make his life less pleasant. 
there right, inside. Taking away his books. And so he explains that death comes to everything and that animals on Earth have a certain need for interaction uh, with other members of their own kind. And so it's understandable that uh, all of these animals are just dying of despair. Mm-hmm. And the aliens uh, address that a couple of different ways. One is that they introduce him to the last woman on Earth, whose name is not Mabel, but uh, he slips up and calls her Mabel a couple of times because Mabel is the name of his dead wife. Her name is Grace Evans. Grace. Grace. Yeah. But he he does slip up a couple of times and call her Mabel, which uh, I think just goes to show where his head is. And the other thing the aliens uh, try to do is, uh, you know, uh, cuddle with the uh, cuddle with the animals and touch well, them, show affection for them. He decides the two animals that have died that they're concerned about. One is a duck, and one is a rattlesnake. Mm-hmm. And he decides to show them to how to give affection by cuddling the pet duck and petting it and saying, "Now you try with the rattlesnake." <laughs> So after uh, the rattlesnake has killed one of the aliens, and then the aliens have uh, have panicked, and then they, they try again, and the rattlesnake kills another alien, and the aliens just have no idea what's going on because they have uh, – one of the things that they have no experience with is venom mm-hmm. and uh, toxicity. Yeah. So they, they say to him, what's, what's happening? Why are we dying now? And Walter's response is, you know, this is this is life on Earth. Is you you eventually die. Uh, that's that's what happens. Death comes for us all. And the aliens do not like that, and they leave. Yay. And then Walter is like, "Ha, my plan worked. Could it work before you actually had people there?" Yeah, he he, he should have done that a little bit earlier. Uh, well, he, he he wasn't in the situation where he had a rattlesnake to uh, to murder uh, the aliens with. They you know, all apparently knocked out everyone on the planet with their ray at a low intensity, then mm-hmm. selected their specimens, and then went around and killed everyone with a ray while everyone was asleep. Let's not think too much about that and how it would have worked. Um, it's rays, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, as, as we know from Edgar Rice Burroughs, rays can do almost anything. Yeah. That's a, that's fair. That's fair. He's got a Greek letter uh, in front of it and bada bing. So the story ends with Walter saying to Grace, now you and I are the last two people on Earth. Do you want to repopulate the, uh, repopulate the planet or not? <laughs> and I remember and this well. Grace's response is, no, that's horrible. The, the, the whole concept is extremely unpleasant. I'm leaving. To which Walter responds, fair enough. Uh, but you, you know where I am if you change your mind. Yeah, I love and, the line and, of uh, "Think it over, my dear, and take your time, but come back." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. The, the, and then, uh, but he's, he has a very relaxed attitude about the whole thing. And then it ends with him in a room alone. And then, of course, there's a knock at the door, which uh, is ending on an up note because Grace ah. has apparently thought it over and decided that she would rather uh, not uh, let the human race go extinct, but she would. Would sleep with this guy. So it's it's I, I, it's a bit like that one Twilight Light Zone episode, except not at all like that one Twilight Zone episode. Yeah. Well, it predates that one Twilight Zone yeah. episode. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, sure. I have a feeling that the Twilight Zone drew a lot on Frederick Brown. Yeah. Well, we just me and a buddy of mine just did a Twilight Zone marathon, and yeah, there's certain beats you can definitely see in the story that they were definitely cribbing from, as well as other stories there. And by the way, I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, it was Martha was the wife. Ah, uh, not Mabel. Yeah. Martha. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, yeah, honestly, this thing gave me almost a dystopian version of the Superman Zoo in a lot of ways. You know, the, the idea Superman that, zoo? yeah, like uh, in the Fortress of Solitude, he has a zoo. 
of alien monsters. But instead of being there, it's it's Earth. It's kind of inverted. Mm-hmm. Well, he's well, uh, you know Superman didn't kill all the other animals. No, he he was fortunate that. that we yeah. know of. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm the, not the, the premise of his of, of Superman Zoo is that he rescued those uh, animals from planets that were being destroyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he's just he's just keeping them there along with like the bottle city of Candor until he can find suitable homes for them, which never happens because comics don't ever end. Um, yeah. He's got a lot on his plate. Yeah, yes, he does. All right, so but we are talking tonight about what Mad Universe, uh, which stars. Can I, can I say two other quick things about Knock, if you don't mind? Sure. Um, one is that I've always loved that this story says. Um, there was the last the last man on earth sat alone in a room. There was a knock at the door, but it wasn't horrible, really. It's just they've destroyed almost every living creature on Earth. That's not horrible. Um, the other yeah. is that I love that this story is a story of resistance, which makes a lot of sense to me right now. Um, how how to resist in the face of uh, overwhelming odds, and there are things you can do without being violent or an action hero or things like that. Mm-hmm. That uh, you know you use your mind, and it works works wonderfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are the two main things I was thinking about when I was reading this. Yeah, cool. And that makes sense with a snake, apparently. Mm-hmm. I used to say, I, I feel like you and I may have had this conversation at some point in the in the past, Siobhan, mm-hmm. that if for a fictional character, there is no motivation that works better than a dead spouse. Yeah. <laughs> right. If you you can have a character do anything, and then you say, "Why did that character do that?" Answer: His wife is dead. Or her husband is dead, and it 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 makes sense uh, yeah. pretty much regardless of what the action is that you're trying to justify. Are you are you and making a? Are you? Making I would a, argue that you'd actually expand it beyond that. It's anything involving a family relative that's within your immediate nuclear family. Let's be honest, Batman. So okay, are, right? Batman's parents are dead. Yes, but everybody's parents die. Yeah. What? I'm sorry, Siobhan. I, oh. I hate this to be how you find out about it. Oh, God. But like Walter says, death comes for us all. You can be in denial until the time comes, though. So, so Jeff, are you, are you making a case for women in refriger- refrigerators? I think that it, that is an incredibly lazy way to do it. But I don't think that anybody ever anybody's objection to women in refrigerators was ever that it does not make sense that Green Lantern would be upset that his girlfriend was stuffed in a refrigerator and seek out revenge on major force. I, I think the argument was just that it's a, a, a terrible literary trick. I don't think it's a question mm-hmm. of motivation being un, unbelievable. Right. Just that it's lazy. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's lazy. That's why, that's, why, that's why it's done is because it's yeah. really simple and lazy and it works so well. And it, and it doesn't yeah. give, give any, any agency to the woman in question. Right, it's horribly yeah. misogynistic. Right, it, it, no, nobody is saying that Mabel slash Martha is a a well developed character in this story. Well, no, she's dead. Yeah, yeah. Because Batman didn't save her. All right. So, uh, moving on to what Mad U- Mad Universe? Uh, what Mad Universe stars our hero Keith Winton, uh, who is an is an editor for a science fiction ma- ma- magazine. Um, and uh, the 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 whole time I was I was reading this, I, I I thought this this must be somewhat autobiographical, but I I didn't find anything in in my brief research on Frederick Brown that that said he was the editor of a of a science fiction magazine. This takes place in the future from Frederick Brown's perspective. He's he's writing this in the in 1949, and this is taking place in in the 50s. Uh, yeah, a few years in the future, the not too distant future. Yes. So. Uh, <laughs> It's a lot like Carnelian Cube and and um, uh, Elsbrog de Camp's other 
uh, multiverse fiction in you know, a lot of ways. We we get a brief setup and then a thing happens and then our character is transported to another world. But uh, unlike uh, Elsbog de Camps and, and, and Fletcher Pratt's uh, stories, we, we actually get to spend some time with our protagonist, uh, learning about him as a person before the thing happens. Uh, and and the thing has a little bit more explanation than the usual, not any explanation that we that we get from uh, De Camp and Pratt. It, apparently, in 1955 or wh- whenever this story is taking place, we we're, we're having our first uh, rocket being launched at at the moon, and it it, it doesn't seem to be a, a a manned launch. They're they're just they're just shooting a they're just shooting a rocket at the moon, and it's gonna set off an electrical discharge so that everyone can see it and know that I guess we the humans have shot a rocket at at the moon. That seems to be to be to be the purpose. It's it seems to me like it's step one in a long process that will culminate in blowing up the moon. Sure, uh, but the the rocket doesn't hit the moon. It it lands on on Keith Winton uh, as he's as he's spending uh, the weekend at his uh, boss's house. His his boss is the, is the owner of a, of a chain of magazines, and he has just uh, over the weekend yet met a a young lady by the name of uh, Betty, uh, who he's he's uh, fallen in, in in love with in just three three days. And Keith has gone out to to have a smoke when the rocket basically lands on top of him and lets off his this electrical discharge which is what transports him to the the universe where the main brunt of the story takes takes place mm-hmm. and basically he's in an alternative dimension that makes letters proud uh you know at that point he wanders around he originally <laughs> sees no sight of flight he asks a farmer for directions he has absolutely no luck but he knows his place because it's greenville mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the farmer gives him a lift yeah, precisely. Mm-hmm. Up to the location there. I mean, he so he he eventually finds out that he's he's basically been transported in into a a universe that that more closely resembles the types of science fiction stories that that he's used to editing. Although he doesn't seem to display a lot of genre savviness. And <laughs> in, in, in fact, he he seems to have trouble articulating his predicament. Even though we we get a very thorough explanation of multiverse theory at, at the end of the tale. Our, mm-hmm. our protagonist himself, you know, un- until we get that explanation, never says, oh, I've been transported to another universe. He just says, you, whenever people ask him, he, says, he just says, a, a thing happened to me, and I can't explain what, what it is, and I think I might be going crazy, which is what a lot of our protagonists say in these types of situations. To be fair, I don't think there was a lot of... Alt- infinite universe stuff being written back in the 40s or earlier yeah. certainly not in the pulps we get the most thorough and concise explanation of 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 multi of of infinite universe theory at the at the end, end of this book that that i've ever read i mean they they, they basically say that um, every possibility that that you, that you could ever think of is is real there's a universe exactly like like this one except you're you know you're 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 left-handed uh there there's a universe where uh, huckleberry finn is real exactly as mark twain wrote it and there's also an infinite number of universes that that are, are are based on everything that Mark Twain might have wrote about Huckleberry Finn, but didn't. 
which is actually which actually is something that always that that kind of bugs me a little bit when people talk about uh, the infinite number of parallel universes in that context, as though it's necessarily the case if you have an interdimensional travel machine that you can go to any given uh, hypothetical world, because that's not how infinity works. Right, you can start counting one, two, three, four, five, and you can keep going forever because there's an infinite number of numbers. Please don't. But but you're never going to get to the number green. You're never going to get to the number Thursday. You might. You haven't counted out that far. I guess I guess. Yeah, I'm not going to go there. Oh, it, 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 <laughs> so I don't think it's necessarily the case that there's going to be a world where you know it's exactly the same, except uh, Keith is left-handed. Well, if for if if you were if you were a, a fan of the television show uh, Sl- Sliders, which the was best someone I, I, I was and, until they oh, got okay. until they got rid of John Reese Davies, who was the best thing about <laughs> that show. But anyways, uh, if if you were a fan of the t- of the television show. Uh, Spiders. This explanation re- makes you realize just how ridiculous it is that they thought that they could get home just by jumping to random universes and and hoping to luck out by landing back in their home u- universe. Because it's infinity, people. Well, mm-hmm. that kind so- of premise—the jumping from one universe to another in an attempt to get home—is um, something that shown up shows up occasionally in different stories. I remember the uh, the Homeward Bounders by. Uh, Diana Wynn Jones was that one of hers, or was that somebody else? I, I don't know. Homeward Bounders, a, a, she, a YA she, story about she wrote. Uh, she wrote Howl's Moving Castle, though. She did, and Fire and Hemlock. Yep, Diana Wynn Jones. Yep. Okay. Nineteen eighty-one. All right, but let's talk about this universe that uh, Keith Winton finds him, himself in. Uh, yeah, because it's not a it's not a story about jumping from universe to universe to universe in the way that Carnelian Cube is. Once Keith goes to this other parallel world. He's in it for the duration. Yeah, and yep. it's it's a fairly well crafted u- universe com- you know, compared to a lot of the stories that we've been uh, reading. Um, I I find that that a lot of these pulp stories tend tend to tend to proceed from from one little episode to to the next without like a lot of world building. But he he keeps building up up his his world, and then things keep keep coming back and we get like actual explanations for things that that seemed uh strange uh, early on in the in the story um so it it seems that i i think sometime in the in the in the 30s no in the in the early uh shortly after the turn of, of the century someone invented the uh hyperdrive and the the the, the story of of how the hyperdrive was was in invented really reminds me of douglas adams story about how the infinite improbability drive was in in invented uh this the scientist was basically fixing his wife's sewing machine and i I forget exactly what frederick brown says but he 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 ends up crossing some some wires and the sewing machine teleports to somewhere else for some reason he's hooked up a generator to a treadle powered sewing machine and crossed some wires and as a result, sort of parts started disappearing and getting transported vast distances. It's it's a it's an interesting background that a lot of the stories that we've read up to this point have not really had. It definitely gives one the sense, and I I, I may have I feel like we talked about this before, that around the time of World War II, there was a sort of generational change or sea change in in the kind of stories that were being uh, being published and written and read. Uh, because this this definitely just feels to me like a mid-century story 
Uh, and it's just it's from a different generation than Robert E. Howard and H.P. Lovecraft in the same way that Robert E. Howard was clearly related to, but a different generation from Edgar Rice Burroughs. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it, yeah, it's it's not about beating up uh, monsters or establishing your your dominance. It's 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 about figuring things things out. It's a, it's about sur- surviving and using your your wits. Yeah, there's a there's a number of sequences in this where I just I question how uh, Frederick Brown wrote it because it what it reads to me like is like he was he asked him he you know kind of organically got to that point in the story and then was like well what what's the intelligent thing to do at this point and then goes from that rather than trying to get to a particular end point. Um, well, I, it reads very much to me like a mystery novel. Mm-hmm. Like his his mystery novels, it's got that kind of pacing and that kind of, well, what would happen next? Rather than the science fictional, I'm working towards a specific end. Yeah. There's a couple of bits at the beginning where he kind of has to um, either break his own rules or come up with a really fairly convoluted explanation for it uh, later on when it becomes time to explain things. And I'm thinking uh, firstly of the fact that Keith had just met Betty. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there was no, there's no reason for the story that, that Keith has just met Betty and it actually probably works better if Keith has known Betty for a while. Mm-hmm. And when Keith finally finds parallel Betty, um, he finds out that parallel Betty is somebody that parallel Keith has in fact known for a while. Um, rather than somebody whom whom uh, whom he just met. Yeah. Uh, similarly, the whole thing with the the whole thing with the dates on the coins does not make a whole lot of sense. It's as though he wrote the set piece of Keith trying to use the coins mm-hmm. uh, for money, discovering that there's this whole thing with money in the parallel world, and um, being accused of being an Arcturan spy. And then later had to answer the question, well, why, w- why would it be that Arcturan spies would have that kind of money? Mm-hmm. And because the explanation for it does not make a whole lot of sense at all. Well, it, I think it, the know, ultimate explanation makes a lot of sense for it. And, the and ultimate it, explanation being that the whole world just happens to match up to all of the uh, crazy space opera tropes. Well, the, the fact that the world is the one that he'd been thinking of. And then what he was thinking of is what would a young late teens fan think of as his ideal world? So, you know, it's got all the sort of um, strange details like the coins and the years for the coins that an inexperienced writer or a young fan would probably think of without or or as ways around the, the, the plot point. The Doppelberg verse in a lot of ways, because Joe Doppelberg is, at least partially responsible for this universe, <laughs> right? Because because just before the the rocket crashes, Keith had been reading reading a letter from this this young teenage fan named named Joe Doppelberg. And at the end of the story, that's that is is sort of the explanation for why everything in the universe is 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 the way that it it is. Because apparently, the electrical shock that that transported Keith to this world uh, also somehow read his thoughts or or transported him. A, along his own brainwaves or something. And also, I mean, this this is 
satire. This is absurd on 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 purpose. So so any any convoluted explanation that Brown comes comes up with works because the the whole thing is in, intended to be over the top r- ridiculous. That's on the one hand, that's fair because it, you're correct. It is a satire and, and it is deliberately ridiculous and stuff. But I feel like the thing with the coins is just of a different a different level than some of the other self-consciously ridiculous stuff. Like the fact that Betty wears a uh, <laughs> like space bikini uh, all the time because she's a space girl and that's what space girls wear. Or the the whole fairly convoluted and complicated story uh, behind the mist out. Oh, I love that though. <laughs> uh, and the and you have the yeah, it's it's all this crazy stuff that's happening. You get the the mist out, the knockers, um, the, the knockers, a, a detailed the nighters. story. The nighters, nighters are right. yeah, yeah. That's got to be one of the more surreal experiences where you have these roving gangs of hooligans. Armed with blind sticks, so they could actually attack and do never do wells. Yeah, it 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 almost suddenly becomes like like a like a Clockwork Orange or 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 the Purge. So to, for yeah. the for for our one uh, listener who hasn't read the story, uh, apparently uh, Earth is at war with the Arcturans. Arcturans. Mm-hmm. Yes, who will randomly come down from space and blow up any city that they detect lights coming from. Uh, and so uh, Earth electricity. Right, elect- electricity. So uh, Earth tried turning off all of its electricity at, at night, but that, that didn't work because they could, they could detect uh, trace um, um, uh, amounts of it. Uh, so uh, an, an Earth scientist invented this black mist, which like all of the major Earth cities just disperse at, at night, uh, which blocks uh, whatever... Be, befuddles the the uh, instruments of the Arcturan aliens, but it, it also means that no one can go go out at night because no one can can see, and and crime runs rampant in the in the major cities. Uh, of, of course, it's absurd because why wouldn't the Arcturans simply just map the Earth and remember where you know all the major cities are and blow them up anyway? Well, because they, they can't even figure out what year they stop making coins. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing about the Arturans, which is kind of weird. Apparently, they have total recall, but they have major gaps in their knowledge, which is why they basically are there. That's how our Puro was able to negotiate way out of his sci-fi magazine situation. Well, frankly, the, one gets the sense that the Arturans are not that bright, which is how the humans have been able to consistently outwit them up to this point, despite well, I mean, yeah, their Betty, Betty, massive technological advantage. Betty yeah. even even says they they do lots of brilliant <laughs> things, but they do lots of stupid things things too. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to be fair, it's not their first rodeo. At this point, they had conquered the local galaxy, you know, local solar system. They've basically were acting like invaders on the moon, Venus, and Mars. And as a result, they had literally it was it was until they left the solar system that they ran into these guys that were apparently bigger dicks than they were. It's a situation where you have aliens, and Frederick Brown is trying to present aliens that think in an alien way. You know, that's what uh, John W. Campbell said around this time: was uh, show me an alien that thinks as well as a man, but differently than a man. And and, and that's how how we we got. Um, I I I forget what story we we read that that like answered that that challenge but that was we we read, read it quite a quite a while ago it was it was a very short story ultimately if we go back to the original part of the narrative he goes into a druggist he gets a coke he looks at the magazines he realizes they're not quite right he drops one coin off and then makes a crap out of money and then he wants to be nice and this is when no good deed goes unpunished because that's when the purple basically 
he starts screaming it's a fake and start and shoots him in the shoulder and that purple monster comes for him. Yeah, I I, I I think one of the, one of the also in, in intentionally ab- absurd things about this universe is, is just how cheap human human life life is because we, mm-hmm. we we learn very er- early on that that being accused of, a, of an arcturian spy uh gives the police license to shoot anyone in the v- vicinity that, that that they even 10 percent su- suspect of possibly being an an arcturian spy and we we learn that scores of people have have uh died in greenville just just be because Keith tried tried to pass off these these coins, and we we learn that hundreds of people die in the major cities every every night because of this uh, missed out, and it's it's hilariously ab- ab- absurd because people just sort of they just sort of roll with it. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's absurd from our perspective, and to the people that it, to the to the people of the parallel world. It's just a fact of life that you have to live with and get used to, but it's not something that they that they make jokes about. At one mm. point, uh, Keith is talking to the alternate Betty, and um, yeah, he's he's talking about the the war with the Arcturans and the whole crazy, silly space opera ness version of it. And she detects that he is not taking it entirely seriously, <laughs> and she gets really kind of annoyed at him and is like, "I'm sorry, do you find the destruction of the entire human race funny?" Uh, because those are the very real stakes, um, you know, as far as she's concerned. Yeah, and it's 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 to Brown's credit as as an author that in in the middle of this of this comedy story, there's there's moments of of real drama and real horror. Yeah, I like that he did things of, of figuring out how society would continue to function with the missed out, like how uh, well this month our businesses all close at one o'clock, because mm-hmm. if people can't go out at night, they've still got things to do. You can't spend all your waking hours at work because you'd never be able to get groceries or have entertainment or anything like that. And everybody rises with the sun. Yeah. And the um, the details of how Keith and uh, what's his name is Buddy steal a car and then drive through Manhattan in the in the mist out, um, and how they they navigate by you know tapping the curb mm. and so forth is really intricate and. Uh, speaks to i have it's a it's again a situation where i have an image of frederick brown like just sitting down and spending a fair amount of time puzzling out the the mechanics of it in a way that we don't often see uh people puzzling out the mechanics of things in the stories that we have read up to this point in appendix and certainly edgar rice burroughs was not a big fan of puzzling out (laughs) mechanics well i mean from brown's era through the 70s a large vein of science fiction was hey look how clever i am um yeah uh, absolutely, absolutely. It's uh, it's just another sign that we've we're moving into a different era of mm-hmm. uh, of fantasy fiction as the the, you know, the calendar continues on and we drift towards the uh, the middle of the century and the Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The diff- the big difference is that um, Brown was able to actually write, unlike authors like Piers Anthony, who, oh my God, the, yeah. The, the, the descriptions he had – I've tried to reread some of his, the things I read when I was a kid, and there, there are entire chapters that are just, let me explain programming to you. Let mm-hmm. me explain this cool idea I had, and there's no plot. There's no real anything except someone lecturing you, whereas yeah. when Brown needs to do something like that in this book, he does something I love. He has the hero go and get some books, and then he reads the books and finds out what he needed to know 
the way that we would. Yeah, Piers, Piers Anthony is a special person. Actually, what I thought it was a real kick out of is some of these books I wouldn't mind picking up. The History According to H.G. Wells? Come on. Who wouldn't want to pick that up? I have four copies. Do you want one? We'll talk. The Outline of History? Yeah, I think I think the the book that Keith Winton picks up in the story is is based on, on an actual book that H.G. Wells actually wrote. It's just in this universe. Oh, wow. Yeah, this in this universe, H.G. Wells apparently lived a little bit longer. Well, the thing that's really unbelievable to me in this universe is that they managed to fit um, the outline of history into one paperback volume. Most of the ones I have are two large hardcovers. Mm. I've never seen it, so I can't speak oh, to it's that. A, it's a. It was yeah. one of my favorites when I was a kid. Maybe it's it's uh, heavily uh, uh, bridged. It would have to be. Yeah. 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 I remember looking up some of the names that um, Frederick Brown drops in that portion of authors um, authors of some of these books, and they. At least uh, all of the ones that I saw were uh, were were actual people and and actual books by and large. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, the author of um, I don't remember which one it was. Is the was missed out necessary? A, an an actual uh, uh, sports writer. Best, he was best known as a sports writer. He was active in writing in the uh, uh, middle of the century, and those were the kinds of it was the kind of thing that he would write, basically. So I don't know if that was somebody that Frederick Brown knew socially or what. Yeah, it was the something author Mecky, I think it was. Oh yeah, let's uh, let's talk about Mecky. Oh, Mecky. Mecky. Mecky is a is a is a giant floating uh, plot device, but he's still pretty pretty <laughs> awesome. Mecky's sheer ridiculousness um, really just makes the story. <laughs> Mecky makes no sense. Uh, Mecky does not even make sense within the context that Mecky is presented. Right? It makes Mechie... sense within the context of uh, old pulps, though. Okay, so listen, listen to me, uh, listener. For for bear with me for a second. Mecky is a a silver uh, no silver black one of the two ball uh, which levitates and is super intelligent. Uh, it's an, an uh, a robot or or AI. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does not have an apparent power source. It has telepathic powers. It mm-hmm. is super intelligent, and it was built by uh, Doppel, the hero, basically. It's it's of, pronounced of it's pronounced Do- Dopel. <laughs> Dopel, sorry, sorry, <laughs> Dopel. <laughs> but but Dopel has no idea how he built it, which is a, a, a funny little touch, and it's really Meki that is like the strategic genius who is leading Earth's uh, forces against the Arcturans. Mm-hmm. Is this the 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 first be- benevolent uh, robot or or machine that we've come across in uh, Appendix N? This may be the first like benevolent supercomputer, like super intelligent type thing. I feel like there have been robots that were basically just guys made out of metal that have been fairly friendly up to this point. Although I can't think of any off the top of my head now that I think about it. I feel like there were though mechanical men at some point. Certainly, a mechanical men were not a new concept in 1949. Yes, yeah, so we, we omnipotent mechanical men. Yeah, that's a new thing. Yeah, we 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 meet Mecky for the first time while they're while they're having some kind of ticker tape uh, parade, and with a, with a ticker tape parade in Mecky's honor. Yes, Mecky is floating above because he levitates, so he's floating above a uh, big convertible that is being driven slowly <laughs> through the city, and everybody is cheering, uh, cheering Mecky and throwing confetti and waving banners. Right, like you do, and, and uh, within uh, within. 
moments of of coming near our our hero Meki is 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 able to uh, immediately read uh, Keith's thoughts and sense that he's not from this world, but that's o- okay. That he means nobody any any harm, and he's going to try and and help our hero, but he can't do it uh, right just now because he's got a thing of like a war to manage. He's busy. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> it reminds me. Meki reminds me of a Superman comic from the 1950s. I don't remember where in the 19 when in the 1950s it might have been the late 40s i don't know but it was superman recounting this story from ancient krypton how the ancient kryptonians built themselves a gigantic supercomputer to um solve all of their problems for them and run their society and they thought this was going to be great and so they turned the thing on and the first thing it says is i need you to build me an army of robots and they're like why do we need an army of robots and the computer it says i don't need to explain it to you. you. I'm the supercomputer. You do what I say. So they're like, okay, supercomputer. And they build an army of robots. And then surprise, surprise, the supercomputer uses the army of robots to conquer the planet. And uh, Krypton suffers for an eon under like robot rule. And even that, reading that as a, as a small child, I had to ask myself why the Kryptonians would have gone along with it and built an army of robots. Because it's aliens thinking in alien ways, but as smart as a man. Exactly. And also on top of that, well, they did you, a review on the animated s- series where they basically use Brainiac to play the analogy. They built Brainiac, and Brainiac did it by saying, no, you're not valuable enough, I'm leaving. And then the planet exploded. Yeah, well, Superman doesn't make any sense, uh, even though I love, <laughs> I, I love Superman. But the, 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 the way Mechie talks re- reminds me of dialogue bubbles in old comics, because they were very wordy. And you you had to get a, a lot of complex i i ideas across in little little space while simultaneous while simultaneously reassuring the the audience that everything is okay. Superman isn't killing anyone. He's not breaking any laws. He's totally reimbursing that that shop owner for everything that he just he just broke. It's it's fine, kids. I'd like to mention that this was my first um, encounter with Infinite Universe Theory when I was a little kid, and I became obsessed with it ever since. Alternate Universe stuff Mm -hmm. is some of my favorites and and has been, Um, and I love that there was actually a Scientific American article about a decade ago that pretty much says everything that Frederick Brown was saying, only they calculated out how many universes there could possibly be given the number of atoms in the universe, um, which I thought was what you might do if you're really bored one day at work. It's one of the reasons why Sliders disappointed me so much, mm-hmm. because it didn't do what I thought it should. And I have that problem a lot. I had that problem with Voyager, too. Yeah. But uh, I love that Brown hit upon this thing that scientists have been pursuing for years and essentially have said, yeah, that that seems about right. The idea of parallel worlds is uh, definitely a fruitful one, and since this is Appendix N, part of the Tome Show Network, maybe we should tilt the conversation around towards Dungeons & Dragons and observe that parallel worlds, alternate prime material planes, is not something that you see very often in Dungeons & Dragons. Um I uh, the closest thing I can think of off the top of my head is like the Spelljammer setting and how um, mm-hmm. and Planescape and how in those but e- but in those uh, contexts you have different uh, prime material planes like you have Faerun from the Forgotten Realms and Kryn mm-hmm. from Dragonlance and Athos from 
Dark Sun and so forth, uh, which are just different campaign settings that you could theoretically jump from one to the other of. Um, but you don't have a version of Faerun where you know, Zenthal Keep uh, successfully conquered Hillsfar, or a version of Faerun where Hillsfar um, successfully conquered Zenthal Keep, for that matter. I don't know that Zenthal oh, Keep actually did that. As a, as a, my as a, lore, my realm's lore is not a hundred percent, but as a, as a GM, getting getting your your players to care enough about the the history of your world, first of all, and you know, like a. Uh, enough so that if you if you change that history, uh, th- things would be would be different is pretty pretty tough. Actually, I can give you an example of parallel worlds within gaming. It's simple. Somebody else's gaming table. They change it just enough while using the basic content core that they got from the bookstore, and something goes a little different. Like for example, I'm running Storm Giants Thunder with my group right now. And I decided to mix in ultra-modern firearms, and the gnomes are the only ones with 20th century technology. I am a parallel world to run realms. Some other GM might decide, mm-hmm. yes, that idea evolving to interior keep taking it over would be a great idea. So parallel worlds equals different tables. Right, but even then, we're not talking about the situation where you have slightly different versions of the same people. Right, because for that to be the case, it would have to literally be something like Dragonlance, where everybody is using pre-generated characters mm. and playing through the the same pre-generated adventures, rather than, you know, the, the oh, the difference in this parallel world is that a completely different half dozen murderous misfits uh, <laughs> who are multi-millionaires but spend all their money on better knives instead <laughs> of uh, lay, uh, instead, instead of property. Uh, just a, a different set of them showed up to uh, to explore White Plume Mountain, um, or what have you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I just I I just think this this type of story is 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 hard to tell in a in a fantasy role role playing game. It, it it works a lot better with the with the real world where where we we, we are very familiar with with our our own world. So that if we change one or two things. In a in a startling way, it's it's going to matter to players. But if you're if you're running your uh, Greyhawk ca- campaign and suddenly they go to a, a world where Greyhawk Castle is blue, it it, it, it you know it's it's not going to mean as much to you know to them. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I suppose that to use the Forgotten Realms as an example, it would really it's the kind of thing that really only works if everybody has a big investment into and deep knowledge of the setting. Right, um, which you, which that, you basically never see. Right, right. Yeah, at the same time, that's when you get the grognards going, "No, you did it wrong," and that's when you get the conflict and contention. Therefore, well, I don't play with those people. So, a wise man. Thank you. Well, I mean, you can do it with heavy-handed exposition, the equivalent of going out and finding H.G. Wells' um, history book, uh, where you have your your people go out and have their adventure, and when they come back, the castle is blue, and the leader is someone they didn't expect who actually died four years ago. But you have to really lay it out for them before you can start them on that adventure. Yep, yep. They they, they have to be really used to the setting that they're in first, mm-hmm. and 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 they they have to have a attachment to some of the people and places. And you yeah, kind of think- have to hammer it home. Yeah, having having attachment to some of the people and places I think is key, because now I'm imagining a scenario where the player characters are in like some some village or something, and they have some NPC allies, 
and then you know something happens they go to a parallel world and they're still in that village but all of the npc allies are different because they're in different circumstances mm-hmm. then the uh, then the players are going to be more engaged because these are characters that they know yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, thinking about one of the games I played back in college, uh, we had an NPC that was with us a long time, and he was killed uh, through the randomness of the dice, and we were devastated. If he, if the game master had maybe two sessions later or five sessions later said, you come to this town and so-and-so is waiting for you, well, that would have been a big enough of an effect that he could have launched into a parallel universe story from there. Yep. Or it's a doppelganger. Sure. Sure, or a do- or a Dopel ganger, but you know, illusion. <laughs> like, there's so many different options in this situation. Sure. Okay, well, I think this book had a had a genuinely positive re- reception. I I certainly and enjoyed it a lot more than many of the other books we've been uh, reading recently, and especially coming on the heels of uh, Carnelian uh, Cube. Uh, this was this was very refreshing. It's interesting to look at how this differs from Carnelian Cube. Although I, I feel like if I'm going to go down that road anymore, I'm just going to start slagging on Carnelian Cube, and we already have a whole episode of that. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, maybe I would, better to I would the say off. if 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 you're a fan of uh, Douglas Adams and and the Hitchhiker's Guide to the to to the Galaxy, you would probably enjoy What Mad Universe by by Frederick Brown, and and I would be surprised if. If Douglas Adams himself wasn't wasn't familiar with this story in in some form, it's certainly possible. It, you, but listener, listener, bear with me for a second, listener. Do you remember in the last episode of Appendix N how we kept stopping and saying we what we've described sounds kind of cool and interesting and worth reading, but do not go read Carnelian Cube. Do not go read it, listener. Uh, we're we're saying the opposite of that. For uh, for what Mad Universe? By all means, seek out and read What Mad Universe. It's it's good and and not bad. Or yeah. or get the uh, audiobook off of Audible dot com. The 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 guy who read the audiobook, I he 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 had a strong New York accent, and I I thought he sounded like a, like an old timey radio narrator most most of the time, yeah. which which really lent it a, a lot of that atmosphere. Yeah, like this is the sort of book that you'd love to give to Harvey Corman sometime in the seventy sixties. Just to see what sort of movie you come out with. Unfortunately, people did try to make a movie out of Frederick Brown's book, uh, Martians Go Home, and that did not turn out well. Ooh, ouch. The, the book is amazing. The movie, and, and I think also one of the things that inspired Douglas Adams, but the, uh, the movie that they tried to make from it um, basically took the name and decided to throw out the rest of the book. Yeah, Martians Go Home was 55, which puts it on the other side of Lord of the Rings for us. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't know that we're going to talk uh, any more about Frederick Brown uh, because this is this was definitely an entertaining story, but it does seem kind of tangential to Appendix N. Uh, speaking generally, and looking at Frederick Brown's bibliography, it's really hard to pick something out and say, ah, this story here, the one about the guy with the sword and the wizard and the dungeon, is the <laughs> one that we should be reading. What Mad Universe kind of randomly. Yeah, I just rechecked uh, Appendix N, and Gygax just gives Frederick Brown's name. He doesn't list any titles. So I, I, I don't remember why exactly we, we picked What Mad Universe. I'm glad that, that we did, because it's, it's, it's a great... science fiction, though. Yeah. What's that? It's, it's why we picked it. Makes sense. <laughs> All right. 
Uh, but he he did he mostly wrote uh, mysteries. Uh, he wrote a lot of short stories. He wrote several other science fiction novels. Um, you know, fifty three, fifty five, fifty seven, sixty one. Um, so I mean, based on the fact that we all enjoyed What Mad Universe, maybe we want to uh, maybe we want to read Project Jupiter and Martians Go Home and so forth. Um, but we'll certainly cross that bridge when we come to it in. I don't know, another towards the end of 2018, maybe. Yeah, it's going to take some time. Yeah. However, if your audience wants us to read these books, let us know. I'd be more than happy to recommend my favorites of his. I've read everything he's written. Okay. Oh, by all means, uh, Siobhan, uh, go into a little bit of detail, why don't you? Now? Why not? We're we're, we're at the end of the podcast. Uh, Our one listener has probably lost interest at this point so uh we we appreciate you listening to the first listening to the first uh 45 minutes or hour of the episode listener uh thank you for that uh but nobody nobody expects you to 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 you know stumble through all the way to the end it's okay it's okay so um i do have a question for you actually um Mm -hmm. before i before i tell you which other of his books i think you should read um do you do any of um theodore sturgeon sturgeon is not an appendix in author <sighs> it's a shame um because he's done some of the fantasy type stuff that you were talking about he's, he's yeah, one I, of my favorites i've been thinking that it may be worthwhile to do like a an appendix in knights or appendix in the lost pages or something like that <laughs> clark ashton smith is a big name that i feel like uh is inexplicably omitted yeah, the the what mad universe of Appendix N, an <laughs> alternate universe where they were included. There you go. Well, there's there's uh, always a, a Appendix E from the fifth edition Player's Handbook, which expands upon uh, uh, Appendix N. Oh. Um, yeah. So it yeah, <laughs> we've we've got uh, we've got books and books and books to to to, to keep us occupied and, and until the end of time. Uh, but we we can only really talk about so many at at one one time because we've got uh, other projects. And uh, speaking of other projects, now now's the time where uh, we can we can share what we're working on and and how people at home can contact us if if they have uh, questions or or they want to join in in the conversation. Uh, Chris Constantine, let's let's start with you. Where on the internet can people find you? Well, most of my work lately has been on my Breath of Posanity blog. Uh, I still have my D-Rev RPG, but I'm in the middle of trying to retool it for 5th edition, doing some experiments there. Uh, as said before, I'm working on the RPG Circus right now. I've written a couple of things on the GM's Guild, uh, The Sorrows of the Lost Fail, my attempt to try to write a 2nd edition source book on 5th edition material. And the Minotaur of the Stonelands came out quite a few months ago as well, for those who like Scottish Minotaurs. Uh, you can contact me by email at drevrpg at gmail.com or on my Twitter account at, at drevrpg. Awesome. Thank you. And uh, Siobhan, where can people find you on the internet? Well, uh, I'm on Twitter as uh, Ordquelu, which is a reference to an obscure Legion of Superheroes secondary character. That's spelled O-R-D-Q-U-E-L-U. Um, that's the main place I'm on the internet. You could email me at uh, Siobhan at thoughtstream.com. Um, I have a number of blogs uh, on ThoughtStream that are very inactive, um, but I'm going to be starting one up soon, which is basically uh, a comics blog that is what I would do if I were in charge of DC Comics. Before we close out, though, uh, Siobhan, you were going to extol uh, some Frederick Brown stuff. Uh, ah. lay, lay, lay some Frederick Brown wisdom on us real quick as you as you play us out. 
so his best stuff is his short stories. Uh, he did another one based on a classic, um, uh, which all of a sudden has left my mind. But anyway, um, if you find his short story collections, and there are dozens of them under different titles, um, he, he, it's really where he shines. Um, but for novels, Martians Go Home and Rogue in Space are his, uh, his two best other than What Mad Universe. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. All right. And uh, Jeff Wickstrom, where on the, inter- the internet can people find you? I am barely on the internet anymore. I have a uh, one-year-old son who is just constantly screaming and falling down and screaming about falling down, and that's keeping me pretty busy. You should you should read uh, you I, should read uh, what mad what mad universe to him while 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 to to get him to fall asleep. I did read less darkness fall to him um, <laughs> back in the day. Well, he was he was a lot younger and he was more willing to just sit quietly or lay quietly. He's uh, a year old back in the day. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's it's been it's been eventful. It's been eventful. <laughs> Uh, you can still find uh, jeffwik dot com. Um, I, I have no idea if or uh, and when uh, anything will ever be added to that site, but the old one still exists. You can still read a comedic retelling of uh, the King Arthur uh, saga. That was amazing. Came in handy for the mathematics and magic. All right. Uh, you can find me, Jeffrey Wynn, on Twitter at Jeffrey D. Wynn. That's G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y-D-W-I-N-N. And I'm also on Instagram with the same handle. Uh, you can listen to my new Sailor Moon podcast, Sailor Moon Silver. Go find it on iTunes. Uh, you can email me by emailing the Tome Show at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Make sure to put put Appendix N in the subject line so they get it right to me. Uh, if you're reading along with us, and why wouldn't you? Your first stop should be your local used bookstore, but if you can't find what you're looking for there, be sure to use the Amazon affiliate link on our website, thetomeshow.com, when you shop on amazon.com. The Tome Show gets a few pennies to pay the bills, and we sure do appreciate it. In a few weeks, we will start delving into the dying earth, and I know Jeff Wickstrom is excited. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the dying earth. I have uh, I've always enjoyed it. Yes, we will we will finally learn uh, what is behind Vancean casting. Uh, followed by two more stories of Fawford and the Grey Mauser, Claws from the Night, and the Seven Black Priests. And we expect to close out the summer with a novel by Fletcher Pratt called The Blue Star. Hope you'll join us for some fun discussions and send us your comments. This has been a Tome Show production of the Appendix N Podcast, episode 43, What Mad Universe by Frederick Brown. Thanks for listening, listener. (laughs) You stole stole my line. Thanks for listening. We're friends.